This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 7th of December. In early November, nations at the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow agreed on a set of rules that will allow countries to cooperate to meet their climate targets. This essentially entails the buying and selling of carbon credits across borders, and it means that countries no longer need to solely rely on what they can do to cut emissions within their own borders. It could take a while yet for the necessary infrastructure to be set up to allow countries to start using credits to offset parts of their official emissions inventories, but the private sector is already raring to go. Ms. Elizabeth Beale, Climate and Sustainability Practice Lead at advisory firm Global Council, joins us today to share more about how the private sector could be impacted by the discussions on international carbon markets. Thanks for joining us today, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. So now we all know that carbon markets aren't new. And over the past two years, we have seen lots of momentum from carbon offsets uh, with net zero targets made by large and small companies. What has the corporate attitude been towards carbon credits over the years? That's right. That's definitely right, Audrey. They aren't new. Uh, you know, carbon markets have been around for 20 years when more than 180 countries signed the Kyoto Protocol um, back in 97. Um and, you know, even before that, there was a, a type of carbon market as part of the Clean Air Act in the U.S. to reduce sulfur emissions. So this is a concept that has existed in a while, for a while and was basically created as a way of uh, being able to cut carbon at lowest cost. So to allow for companies, countries um, to reduce emissions by locating those emissions reductions projects in the area where it could be lowest cost. So it was also a political way to bring those that were more resistant um, at the costs of cutting emissions as, as to provide a bit more flexibility for that. But it's really important to differentiate when we talk about carbon markets, just to get started with, because there are regulated markets or emissions trading schemes, and there are voluntary carbon markets. Um, and while they are similar in terms of the way that they act, they are very different in terms of how they affect or how corporates engage in them. So corporates can can engage in both um, and have been for the last 20 years. Um, emissions trading schemes or regulated carbon markets uh, allow for allowances and target specific types of corporates um, in those schemes. And then there can be trading of those allowances with corporates that are captured by those schemes. So that's important to think about in terms of the regulated carbon markets. In terms of voluntary carbon markets, um, you know, this is then voluntary, as the word says. So corporate engagement can be that they, you know, invest in or uh, projects to reduce emissions or trade and, you know, purchase um, credits, both to contribute to their own um, net zero or sustainability targets. And so it's really important to think about this difference as, as we set off the conversation today. The the main shift, I would say, has been a re related to corporate engagement in both, has been related to the motivation to engage. So I think initially the motivation was regulation. So saying, you know, you have to um, in certain markets like the EU. Um, and now that's and then the type of engagement as the as the other area. So the type of engagement has also changed where we've seen, 
you know, um, much more ambitious, you know, thinking about the amount of credits that are purchased and, and what they're doing with them, but also the types of projects that corporates are investing at this stage. But just to set the context for the voluntary markets, when corporations buy and sell credits on the voluntary market, it's mainly something they do to include in their CSR and their sustainability reports, right? So again, this is yeah the difference between the compliance and the voluntary. So for compliance markets, some compliance markets globally do allow for offsets and the purchase of credits to reduce their emissions or the compliance liability under those. So for example, if we think about, but this really differs market by market. So we can think about the EU as one with, you know, the biggest, which doesn't allow for offsets actually, but then California, for example. So California allows for offsets, but only from certain types of activities and has requirements for how those projects benefit California specifically. So they have a requirement for local environmental benefits like water, for example, as an additional requirement, not just emissions reductions. So that's one way where the corporates can actually engage with offsets in a compliance market. But then, you know, as I said before, they, they've been allowed in compliance markets to sort of soften the blow and get voters to, or, you know, government to pass them. But we've seen the, the the percentage of offsets allowed being reduced and markets like the EU, which are more advanced in this area, actually saying, no, we, we don't allow them at all. Um, and so I think you can expect that while governments are exploring ways to further reduce emissions, they'll be careful about allowing offsets or any credit from voluntary markets towards their, to reduce compliance or, or tax liability. So for example, Singapore, where while there's growing interest in an effort to grow the voluntary market, credits obtained in the voluntary market can't currently be used to offset the obligations under the carbon tax system. So uh, thanks for that, Elizabeth. So just turning to the COP26 meeting recently in Glasgow, how do you think the outcome from there will change uh, the corporate attitude towards carbon credits? So I'm, I'm referring to in terms of Private, the private sector's demand for offsets and acceptance of them, and, and why? Yeah, so, I mean, at the fundamental level, the COP26 agreement um, on implementing Article 6 really provides greater certainty on the rules of the game. So not just for the private sector, but also for governments. Um, and this certainty is the needed step to really increase investment for all parties engaging in carbon trading. Um, and that's because it gives more certainty, as I said, around the rules. But at the same time, what's came about as part of the negotiations at COP26 and has been part of the discussion over the last four years is that there needs to be a more rigorous accounting and verification system put in place to avoid things like double counting, to also ensure that some of the issues found under the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol, um, where those some of those projects were shown to not actual redu actually reduce emissions, that those situations are avoided going forward. So I think we, it also, you can also expect to see a much higher bar in terms of the quality of offsets and what role they can play in meeting overall um, net zero targets. We've already seen this, for example, with the science-based target initiative that has recently launched their net zero standard, um, and that only allows for 5 to 10% of emissions reductions to come from offsets. So just picking up on what you just said about monitoring verification reporting, Currently, the offsets that are sold on the voluntary market are generally considered less robust than compliance markets, such as the EU's emissions trading scheme that we were just mentioning. Uh, will the current developments um, help improve the standards in the voluntary market? 
Yeah, so it's important to think about. So, you know, there are um, a range of standards like the gold standard or VERA or others, which have existed for many years, um, and that the standards do range in quality. I think, you know, you saw with um, the International Civil Aviation Authority's development of the CORSIA program under that process. Um, they, they agreed on allowing six of the voluntary standards actually seen as to be robust enough. Um, so to be meeting, you know, government expectations around credibility and quality. So I think we can expect to see that, you know, especially those six will stay the front runners for the time being, but there will also be an expectation that they continue to improve. And as I said, there w- there is greater scrutiny um, around um, actual verification of emissions and also achieving additional benefits. So we've seen a number of the standards, the voluntary standards come out with, you know, wording, and credit plus standards, which also um, account for impacts on the sustainable development goals, for example. So looking also at, you know, making sure that human rights are respected, local communities benefit. So I think you can expect more evolution in this space to where the standards are trying to compete on quality and additional areas, not just carbon. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. In terms of constraints, especially, what are you seeing on this front? Do you think the recent developments will actually cause greater competition for the offsets between the private sector and governments? So with, I mean, with agreement on Article 6, there there definitely will be, um, in theory, greater overall demand. So as more parties, you know, have certainty around the rules, more parties will engage in trading and demanding credits. And also as governments now can engage in this way, um, there will be greater demand. As a result, we've already seen an increase in carbon prices, but this means also that offsetting will become more expensive for corporates. And so as a result, you might see that corporates also with the greater scrutiny around quality, may decide that investing in mitigation um, makes more sense for them. And so that may then decrease some of the demand. So you'll see a bit of complementary kind of activity here. But the demand overall will stimulate greater investment in carbon reduction projects. And many governments and private sector actors will want a piece of that pie um, in terms of the potential gains that they might get from investing in those types of projects and the potential profits in trading. So we've already seen particular interest from a range of parties who want to get in early in securing credits, for example, and warehousing those credits to see where prices go as a result of growing competition. So following on from what you were just saying about I guess, greater demand for offsets. Does that logically then mean that there will be more companies looking for more investment opportunities in emissions reductions projects from many different types, uh, you know, opportunities right around the world, I guess? Yes. So with the previously low carbon price, for example, and the lack of certainty around the rules for the trading of credits and the use of credits towards compliance obligations meant that many investors in emissions reduction projects had difficulty recouping costs. Um, and so that really, you know, was a deterrent to to many investors from investing. Or you saw basically an investment only in the easiest or uh, kind of lowest um, lowest value carbon reduction projects because, uh, you know, when carbon price was around $5 a ton, there just really wasn't the incentive. So as we see carbon price rise as a result of increased demand um, and other factors, so too will, you know, the interest of investors to in- invest and see, you know, where there's opportunities there. So we're also likely to see more investment in potentially more complicated or difficult, uh, perceived to be difficult previously, um, carbon reduction projects. So 
just one area that we've seen a lot of growing interest in is around blue carbon, for example, um, as there, you know, as the price goes up and makes some of these projects actually seem viable now. Yeah, blue carbon is definitely an area of interest for for our region and Asia Pacific. Lots of mangroves and peatlands here. But I mean, on that note, what do you think? Um, you know, the whole discussion on carbon markets mean for countries like Singapore? I mean, this is not an area where we have the room to accommodate large emissions reductions projects and Ultimately, our our small dent in the global emissions scheme also means we probably won't be a great source of demand as well. So what do you think it means for us? Uh, Singapore wants to be a carbon services hub. What else can we offer? Yeah, I mean, so that's, you, you noted it perfectly. So carbon services hub, because as there is this rising bar in terms of quality and assurance of actual emissions reductions achieved, there will also be a need for greater expertise and service uh, industry to provide that checking of uh, you know emissions reduction, technical expertise on what that means to look at it on the ground, but also uh, in terms of the rules around implementation of the rules around trading. And obviously, Singapore has an, an opportunity to serve as a hub of that expertise for the region, but also globally to provide those types of services for tracking and tracing of emissions reductions and also, you know, new technology. So as new technology with remote sensing and otherwise can be developed out of Singapore and deployed through the region, that will also help with the monitoring, reporting and verification uh, obligations that are being set out uh, under Article 6. And just as a final question, there are still some technical details of Article 6 under the Paris Climate Agreement um, still to be worked out. And, you know, we could see countries using offsets to meet part of their climate targets a few years down the road. But the private sector can obviously move a bit faster. So how do you, how quickly do you think the private sector will move now? And what sort of changes can we expect to see? Well, the private sector is definitely already moving um, and arguably has been moving faster than governments in this area and has been, you know, we work with a, a bunch of private sector clients that have been asking for government to move on this for the last four years and to get to agreement because they're eager to really do more. And so I think we can definitely expect to see more movement from the private sector. But what will be a key determining factor is the robustness of the standards that are put in place and the actual verification of emissions reductions achieved. Because as I said, with the doubts of the previous system under Kyoto, if in a few years from now, there's you know projects that are seen to have been found as faulty or big corporations that are found to have made certain claims that are untrue, uh, or if Article 6 is you know seen to have been implemented in a way that isn't credible, you're like, likely to see, you know, a a huge backlash um, against that because there are already those corners uh, of the world and skeptics about offsets generally and whether that's, you know, is a form of greenwashing or whether it's taking away the emphasis that is needed on actual mitigation in direct operations. So I think that's where you're going to see, um, you know, a big focus. The private sector will need to be careful about, you know, the standards and the types of offsets that they are purchasing um, to avoid that situation and kind of undermining the whole uh, landscape overall. So would you say that overall carbon services or the development of carbon services would be one of the first areas to start moving in terms of development of technology for monitoring and 
in verification? Definitely. So I think, you know, we're already seeing quite a lot of growth in this area as people see that there will be, you know, they've been watching Article 6 for years and trying to see where the market is heading. So I think carbon services that can help with monitoring and verification of credits, but then also advice, uh, advisory services on the development of emissions reductions projects. So I think that project developer area, as I said before, a lot of investors kind of stepped back from this for the last 10 years because it wasn't seem to be that viable. There were a few, um, you know, that waged in in early stages and and have some good examples to draw on. But I do think that also project development expertise will be in demand. So the opportunities are really ripe for Singapore on this front. Definitely. Um, and for the whole region, because obviously with the interest in nature-based solutions as well and, and, and the tropics being a, a good place to, to locate those, uh, you will have a lot of interest and, and demand for expertise in this area. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for sharing your expertise with us. Really nailed all the points. (laughs) Thanks. Pleasure to talk with you both today. Great. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.